Hey, everybody. Thank you. I really appreciate you joining us today, whether you're doing that in person at one of our campuses or online. Either way, you've picked a great day to be here because we are kicking off a brand new series of messages called Unleashing Your Generosity. And for the next four weeks, we're going to be exploring not only how to increase the level of our generosity, but also how to unleash that generosity to make a difference in the lives of the people around us. Now, let me ask you a question. When you hear the word generosity, and especially when you hear this word in church, what's the first thing that comes to your mind, right? Money, right? There's this sort of idea out there that churches only care about your money and that pastors are just trying to separate you from your money, trying to manipulate you to give so they can keep the church going. And so let me just set your mind at ease today. This series is not some sort of fundraiser for Cedar Creek Church. This is not some ploy by me to separate you from your money. In fact, let me just be honest with you. I told you last week that Mother's Day is one of the hardest sermons for preachers to preach. Talking about money and stuff is right up there with dealing with Mother's Day. And while I would rather not have this conversation, it's one that we need to have. So yes, we are going to be talking about money in this series, but that is not the only way that we are to live generous lives. We are to be generous with our time, with our talent, and yes, with our treasure. So we're going to be talking about money, not because money is important, but because money really allows us to see the true condition of our heart, right? It's much easier to be generous with our time and our talents than it is with our treasure. In fact, that's why Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's this emotional connection when it comes to money and stuff. And it's a difficult topic. It's an emotional topic. There's all sorts of baggage from the past and issues. But I want to push through those because I am convinced that there's never been a greater opportunity for the people of Jesus to unleash generosity, to meet the needs of hurting people around us. And so what I want to do today is kind of kick off this series by looking at some foundations for financial generosity, some keys to managing money and material possessions in a way that leads us to have generous hearts. And to help us do that, we're going to look at a parable that Jesus told towards the end of his ministry on earth. Now, for those of you who are kind of new to this whole church and Bible thing, a parable is basically a made-up story to teach a spiritual or moral truth. In other words, the story is made up, it's not true, but the things it teaches us are very true and relevant to our lives. Now, this particular parable, Jesus tells as part of a series of parables to help his followers understand 
what the kingdom of God is like. These parables are trying to paint a visual picture to Jesus' followers of what the kingdom of God looks like. To help them understand that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is not just some place you go when you die, but that the kingdom of God is what it looks like when you're living life the way God designed it. The kingdom of God exists anywhere and everywhere that the will of God is being done by the people of God. And Jesus wants his followers to understand it. And so he tells them this parable, which by the way, is found in the gospel of Matthew chapter 25. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app, you can turn there. We're going to be hanging out in that passage. But if you don't, it's okay. If you've got a program when you came in, some of the key verses are on your outline so everybody can follow along. Now, this parable is known as the parable of the talents. And because in the English language, talent means a special gift, skill, or ability, we assume that that is what this parable is about. But in the first century, a talent was a unit of measure of weight. And specifically, in the Roman Empire, a talent was a measure, a weight of gold. So when Jesus talks about talents in this parable, he's talking about money. In fact, the talent of gold was the largest currency that could be used for uh, transactions. You know, it's the big bill. What's the biggest bill in U.S. dollars? I think it's 100, right? So we might call this, in our vernacular, the talent of the Benjamins, right? This is the big money story. And here's basically the gist of the story. Jesus said an incredibly wealthy man was getting ready to go on a long journey. And since this was before the days of internet banking and E-Trade and Charles Schwab, he needed someone to manage his money and stuff while he was away. And either he didn't have family, or maybe he had family and he didn't trust them, but he actually chose three of his servants to manage his money and stuff while he was away. And so he calls these three guys in and he gives them each a different amount of his money to manage. To one, he gives five talents of gold. To the other, he gives two. And to one, he gives one talent of gold. And off he goes. And he's gone for a long time. The Bible doesn't tell us how long it is, but the word that's used there, the adjective, means it's a whole lot more than just a two-week vacation. This is an extended period of time he's gone. But eventually, he does come back. And when he comes back, one of the first things he does is call these servants in to give their report of what they've done with his money. Now, the guy that got five and the guy that got two, they have great reports. They have doubled their master's money. And so they give this great report, high fives, you know, fist bumps all around. Everybody's excited. But the third servant who was given one talent, he comes in and his report, not so good. He says, I was afraid that I would lose your money, so I took it out and buried it. And when you came back, I just dug it up. Here's your one talent back, nothing ventured, nothing gained. At least I didn't lose what you gave me. And the master's reaction to this guy is, uh, it's, it's like over the top. It, it seems like on the surface, it is a massive 
overreaction because he says, not only are you a lazy servant, but you are a wicked servant. And then he takes the talent back and he has this guy thrown out in what the Bible describes as thrown out to the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. A phrase, by the way, throughout the Bible that is meant to describe hell. Now, I'm not saying, and I'm not saying that Jesus is saying that if you don't manage money well, you're going to hell. But I do know from my own experience, when we don't manage God's money, God's way, we end up in our own living hell of stress, of of being in debt, of fear and worry and being overwhelmed about money. But if we really take some time to unpack this parable, to dig down a little deeper, it shows us a lot of things. But one of the things I think it teaches us clearly is some foundational principles for living a financially generous life. Life. So let's jump in. Number one, the first foundational principle for financial generosity is that it all belongs to God. It all belongs to God. Everything I have right now, everything I've ever had, everything I've saved, everything I've borrowed, everything I've lost, everything I've earned, everything I'm gonna earn or have in my life, it all belongs to God. And this is not just the first principle of generosity, it's the most important principle of generosity. Because let me tell you this, if you don't get this right off the bat, you will always struggle to be generous, whether you have a little or whether you have a lot. In fact, if you don't get this, nothing I say today, nothing we're gonna talk about over the next month is going to make any difference in moving you towards being generous. This is the essence of a generous life. And Jesus makes this clear that it all belongs to God right off the bat. Notice verse 14. Here's how Jesus starts the parable. The kingdom of heaven, in other words, the kingdom of what it looks like when we're living God's way, can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. I want you to circle the word his in that passage. It appears twice. His servants, his money. See, this wasn't payday for the servants. This wasn't him giving one guy five, one guy two, one guy one because of how hard they worked. This wasn't about them getting paid. This was a temporary assignment to manage what the master had given them to manage. And when it comes to money and stuff in our life, God is the owner and we are simply managers of it, right? And that's true. If you can step back from the emotions you feel about money and material possessions, it's very obvious that everything you have is just temporary, right? All your money, all your stuff, it was somebody else's before you got it, and it's going to be somebody else's after you're gone, right? I mean, that's just reality. It's temporary because our life here is temporary. Listen, I was at the birth of all five of my children, and not a one of them showed up with a bag full of cash, although I wish they had. 
because they're so expensive. And I've officiated a lot of funerals. And I've yet to see someone who has been able to take it with them. And you know, here's the thing. Most of us agree with that. Yes, obviously it's all God's. The earth is the Lord and the fullness therein. We believe that intellectually, but in our heart, it doesn't feel that way. And therefore, we don't live that way. Our money and our stuff feels like ours, right? There's a couple of reasons for that. One is you worked hard for it. Right? It feels like yours because you're the one who set an alarm clock, got up and went to work and earned the money while others were laying around sleeping in and playing video games all day, drawing unemployment from the government. You got up and disciplined yourself and worked. And so when you get that paycheck or that direct deposit on Friday or however you get money, you're like, I work for that. I'm the one who went to school and studied and was disciplined when others were playing around. And I got a good education education, to get me that good job. And so it feels like it's mine. Another reason it feels like it's ours is because we not only have possession of it, we have control over it, right? You can do whatever you want to with it. You can save what you want to save, spend what you want to spend, invest wherever you want to invest. And so we've had it for such a long length of time and we can control it. Nobody can tell us what to do with it. It feels like it's ours. Let me give you a quick illustration to see if this would help. Let's imagine that one of you lives in a beautiful lake house. Not, this is not your vacation home. This is where you live. It's a beautiful lake house, gorgeous sandy beach. You've got pontoon boats, jet skis, beautiful port. It's gorgeous, right? That's where you live. It's your house. But let's say one day you call me up and you say, Philip, uh, my spouse and I, we're going to live in Europe for a year. We're going to be gone for a year. And we don't want our house to just sit empty. We want to use it and bless you with it. So we want you and Terry to move into our lake house for the next year while we're in Europe. And we want you to enjoy all the toys, all of it. Just soak it in, right? Which, by the way, if that idea is crossing your mind, my cell number is available. Give me a call. No, but let's say, you know, Terry and I are up there. We're loving it. We're enjoying it. We're riding the pontoon boat, playing with the jet skis. But as we get close to the end of the year, we start to get sad because we realize you're coming back and we're going to have to go back to our house and it's not on a lake and we don't have these toys. But you call me right before the end of the year and say, Philip, guess what? We're going to stay another year. So just you and Terry, just keep enjoying the lake house. And let's imagine that you do that for multiple years, three years, four years, five years, six years. But at the end of the sixth year, you really are coming home. And you call me and say, Philip, we really are. We're getting ready to get on the plane. We're going to be moving back into our house. Imagine if I said to you, your house, what do you mean your house? It's my house. I've been in possession of it. I've been cutting the grass. I've been living here. It's like, it's my house. I don't know what you're talking about. How stupid would that be, right? That's not right. And yet that is often how we do with the money and the stuff and the blessings that God has given us. In fact, one of the symptoms of ownership confusion is worry. 
If you are worrying about money and stuff all the time, you may be confused about who really is the owner of all that money and stuff, right? Because like when Terry and I really do go on vacation and we rent a lake house on VRBO, when we're there, I don't worry about anything breaking down in that house. I'm not tossing and turning, hoping the HVAC doesn't go out or there's not a plumbing issue. But over on four Bel Air Terrace, every noise in the night wakes me up going, what is it going? What am I going to have to deal with, right? Ownership creates stress. And if you have ownership, if you're stressed out about money and stuff, you might want to check whether or not you really believe in your heart that everything you have belongs to God. So how do you do that? How do you recognize that it's all God? One of the easiest ways to do is just ask God, what do you want me to do with your money and your stuff? How do you want me to use it, Lord? And in fact, God has already answered that question for all of us. There are over 800 passages of scripture that tell us directly how God wants us to manage his money and his stuff. In fact, that's why we offer twice a year Financial Peace University classes. It's a nine-week class to just teach these biblical principles for managing God's money God's way. You want to live a generous life? You want to unleash some generosity? Then start by recognizing that it all belongs to God. There's a second principle, a second foundation for financial generosity in this. Recognize that I have enough to be generous. I have enough to be generous. You know, it's so easy to think, if I had more, I'd be more generous. It's not true. People aren't generous because they're rich. In fact, many, not all, and I don't want to be stereotyping here, but for many people, the more wealthy they become, the more difficult it is to be generous. Because true generosity is built on the condition of your heart not the worth of your finances. It's a heart issue. If you are generous with a little, you'll be generous with a lot. If you're not generous with the little you have, you won't be generous even if God doubled it or tripled it. You know, one of the things Jesus makes really clear in this parable is that God has given us exactly what we need to live a generous life. Where is that in the parable? Well, it's based on the fact that he gave each of his servants a different amount, right? He didn't equally divide his money among the three. He didn't give each of them two and two-thirds talents of gold. Look at what he did, verse 15. It says, to one he gave five talents, to, the, to another two, and another one one. Now, Paul's right there and look up here. That seems unfair, Right? Why would he give one more than the other? Why would he not do it equally? Well, look at what the parable says. Notice the rest of the verse. Jesus said he gave to them each according to what? What's that phrase say? His own ability. Not the master's ability, but the ability of the individual servant. See, the master knew these guys. He knew what they could handle, and he knew what they couldn't handle. In fact, if you read the rest of the parable, you can see the master knew them very well because the ones he gave the most to did the most with it 
and the one he gave the least to was afraid based on what he had. If he was scared with one talent, how freaked out do you think he'd have been if the master had given him five talents? My point is this. God has given you what he's given you, not in an unfair way, but in a loving way because he knows you and he knows exactly what you need to experience the best, most successful life that he has created you for. You know, one of the biggest mistakes we make when it comes to our money and our stuff is comparison. We look around and compare what we have to what others have, and we convince ourselves, yeah, if I was born with a silver spoon, I would be generous. If I was born with all the advantages that other people have, I would be generous. If I had the privilege, if I was raised in the privilege that other people had, then yes, I would be a generous person. Now, hear my heart on this. I am not minimizing the disadvantages you have of the family you were born into or the financial situation you were raised in. And I'm not making some political statement about privilege or lack of privilege. I'm just trying to say you started where you started because God knows you and he loves you and he wanted to give you the best chance to be all that he created you to be. Side note, this is really easy to miss, just how generous the master was with all three of the servants. And see, this easily gets lost in translation. In our mind, we see the poor little one talent guy standing there with his one pitiful little coin going, what am I supposed to do with this? You know, it's like Oliver Twist. Oh, thank you, sir, can I have another? We feel sorry for the one talent guy. But here's the thing, I did the research this week do you know how much a talent is? A talent is 70 pounds, 70 pounds of gold. At today's current market, this one servant guy, the master gave him $1.4 million. Don't feel sorry for the one talent guy. He's been instantly made a millionaire. He's got more than enough. And guess what? So do all of us. The poorest among us, the poorest of the poor Americans are still in the top 15% of the wealthiest people in the world. Do you realize that? I mean, we talk about the one percenters and the 99. If you've got $2 in your pocket, you are part of the top 15% of wealthiest people on the planet. The vast majority of people in this world live on less than $2 a day. Yes, you may not have as much as Bill Gates or, or Elon Musk, but you have been blessed simply by being born in the most prosperous nation on the planet of the earth. We have been blessed. And rather than feeling sorry for what we don't have, let's be grateful for what we do have. And the best way to be grateful is to make the most of however many talents God has given you. And that's the third principle, is to use what I have wisely, to use it wisely. See, not only has God given me everything I have, but he expects me to make the most out of what he's given me, whether it's a little or a lot. 
Notice verse 19. It says, after a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. Circle that phrase, used his money. See, not only is there accountability, but there is an expectation. The master had an expectation that they would be wise and make the most out of what he had given them. Not for themselves, not to benefit themselves, not to live out their desires and priorities. He expected them to use it for his desires and priorities. And it's clear by the way Jesus, or by the way the master responds to these reports they give, that he expected them to use his money to benefit his business. Here's why I say that. The two guys who doubled the master's money got the same response. Even though the five talent guy had earned the master more than twice as much as the two talent guy, the master's response to them is exactly the same. That's why in the passage, verse 21 and 23 are carbon copies. Look at what the master says to both. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share your master's happiness. They both get that response. Why? Because it's not about the money. It's about making the master's priorities their priorities. One talent guy, very different response. Notice verse 26. The master says, you wicked and lazy servant. That's a harsh response. I mean, I get the lazy because the guy was lazy, but wicked? Really? When I think of wicked, I think like people who are intentionally evil, like murderers and, and rapists. Why would Jesus tell the story with this response? I think there's a couple of reasons. One, because of the motivation behind the behavior. Why did the one talent guy bury the talent? For fear. What was that fear driven by? What would happen to him? that it would be bad on him, that it was all about him. See, sometimes I wonder, and I want to be careful here, I don't want to add anything to Jesus' story, but I wonder if this guy had arrested it on the master's business, even if he lost part of it or even all of it, I can't help but wonder if the master still might have said, well done, at least you tried to do what I had called you to do. The second reason I think you see this harsh response is that Jesus wants us to clearly understand just how important this issue is. God is passionate about his business and his business is people. God is in the business of hurting and broken and struggling people and he wants us to be passionate about his business. See, money's just a tool. Guys, money is not the scorecard we use to compete with each other. Ladies, money was never meant to be the source of our security. It is just a tool that God gives us, one, to meet our needs and the needs of our family. Yes, you shouldn't just go sell everything and give it all away. The Bible's clear. If you won't take care of your own family, you are worse than a non-believer. So yes, part of what God has given you to meet the needs of you and your family, but he's also given it to you that you can use part of it to further his kingdom. Money's like manure. 
You pile it up and it stinks, but you spread it around and it makes things grow. Look, I'm not saying you shouldn't save. In fact, the Bible's very clear. It is foolish not to save for a rainy day. Everybody needs an emergency fund. Everybody needs to plan for the uncertainty of the future. Saving is not the problem, hoarding is. And saving and hoarding are two different things. And the difference is not the amount, but in the heart of the individual. God expects us to use what he's given us wisely. He's given us everything. And he wants us to use it for his priorities. And when we do, we experience the fourth foundational principle of generosity, and that is generosity leads to opportunity. Generosity leads to opportunity. And notice again the response, the the two guys who had made the master's priorities their priorities, they get not only the well done, good and faithful servant, But look at what else they get. Verse 21 and 23. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. You see, as we start to take small steps towards living generous lives, God will open the door for us to have more impact and more influence in the lives of the people around us. And that's true for us individually, and it's also true for us collectively as a church family. You know, preparing for this message this week caused me to spend a lot of time thinking about just the history of Cedar Creek Church. In the brief 26 years that Cedar Creek has been a church, there is an incredible story of amazing generosity, financial generosity, That's the thing that that God has grown this church not by a couple of wealthy sugar daddies who have been giving and paying the bills, but it's literally been by the sacrificial giving of thousands of people all across the spectrum of the economy. That's why we say at Cedar Creek, it's not about equal gifts. It's about equal sacrifice. But you know, the people who came before us in this church were not just generous with their finances. They were generous with their time and with their talents. We see that every week across all of our campuses. Hundreds of people sacrificially and generously give of their time and their energy. Not only to make Sunday morning happen, but all throughout the week to serve with local partners, to serve their neighbors. We stand on the shoulders of some incredibly generous people. And because of that, Cedar Creek Church has been able to be an influential and impactful community, not only here, but all around the world because of the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of those who came before us. But church, it's our turn now. It's our turn now to live generous lives. Let me tell you something. There's never been a greater need in our community or our nation to unleash the generosity of God through the family of Cedar Creek Church. In this world that every day becomes more and more selfish, more and more self-absorbed, more and more divided and fighting, a little bit of generosity can go a long way. 
Don't forget, Jesus told this story for one reason and one reason only. To paint for us a picture of what his kingdom looks like. And the kingdom of God is not about building better churches. It's not about winning political battles in our nation. It is about unleashing the generosity of his church to bring the gospel message of hope and help to lost and hurting people all around us. That's what I passionately want for my life. That's what I want for your life. And that's what I want for this church that follows Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you this morning for just the reminder that in the middle of this difficult and emotional topic that you have reminded us that it's not about the money, it's about the heart. And so, Father, I pray that each of us individually would examine our hearts, we would listen to your voice, and we would take that next step of living a generous life. Not to build a better church, not to make Cedar Creek Church famous, but to make your name famous, to bring your hope and healing to the hurting people who are covering the streets of our community, our country, and our world. Help us, Lord, live generous lives. It's in your name we pray, amen. Look up here for just a second. I, I've asked Terry to join me today as we get ready to wrap up the services at all of our campuses because we just have something we need to share with you and we wanted you to hear it directly from us. I think many of you know several weeks ago, I had my appendix removed, uh, not because it was infected. I didn't have an appendicitis. It was actually because there was some sort of growth in there. Uh, and so they removed my appendix, and it turned out that growth was cancerous. And although the initial report seemed to indicate that the cancer was contained within the appendix, we just found out on Thursday that the more detailed pathology uh, had revealed that it has potentially um, broken through or invaded beyond just the appendix. And so uh, we've been informed that uh, I'm gonna need to have a second surgery to remove the right side of my colon and the lymph nodes from that area. And uh, whatever, the, whatever the pathology shows on those lymph nodes will determine what further treatment, if any, I may need. Obviously, this took us by surprise. It's a shock, it's really a blow. And we just found this out late Thursday afternoon. And we've been trying to process it with uh, just ourselves and our family uh, but we don't know the schedule, the timing of any of this yet. We're still in the very early stages. But we just wanted to take a moment and share this with you, our church family, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, while we are in shock over this, this has obviously not taken God by surprise. And we know that we know that he is faithful. He has been so faithful. You know our family has been down some difficult roads and journeys and we have found God faithful in every step of those storms. And so we know God's going to be faithful in this. He's going to use it for our good and for his glory. But we also know we experience God's peace and his presence 
through you, our church family. It's been that way when our son Rick was in an accident, when we lost our son Philip Jr. We felt your prayers and your presence and your love. And so we just wanted to let you know, just to ask you to be lifting us up in prayer if God brings you to our hearts and minds. And we want you to know we love you and we're just gonna walk this journey together as one big church family. So we love you guys and we appreciate you so much. So thank you for letting us share that. And Pastor Philip and Terry, before y'all go, I'd like to pray for you. So would you join me in prayer, please? Father, I want to come to you this morning and first of all, just thank you that you are a God of perfect wisdom. And I'm just reminded that from the beginning of time, you knew that the leaves were going to be right where they are right now. And you knew what they were going to be going through. And I want to thank you for the promise from your word that you never leave us nor forsake us. And so I know... And I know that they know that you're walking right along with them step by step through this journey. And so I just thank you for your faithfulness to them. Father, I'm also reminded this morning that oftentimes in scripture, many, many times in scripture, as people that loved you and served you and they came against challenges and struggles, you reminded them the battle's not theirs, but the battle is yours. And I'm claiming that right now for the leaves right now for Philip, Father, that this battle is not his, it's yours. He's your servant. He surrendered to you. He lives for you. He loves you. He serves you. And so I know that this battle is yours. And I pray in these days ahead that you guide and direct him and Terry and the family. Father, I pray that you're with the surgeons. I pray that you're with the doctors. I pray with everybody along the way and that this battle truly is yours. And they see that as these days unfold, how you went ahead and you fought this battle for them. Father, I also want to come to you this morning and thank you so much for your promise in Isaiah to renew our strength. And I can only imagine for them how draining this is, how difficult this is, how tiring this can be. But I'm reminded that Isaiah 40, 31 says that those that wait on you, they'll renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll become, they will, they will not become weary and tired. And I claim that for them today, that their strength would be in you. So thank you that you're gonna undergird them and guide and direct them through these days. And then Father, this also wanna pray this morning and just uh, that this whole thing, this whole situation will be used to further your kingdom. And I was just reminded as Pastor Phillips in an email to the staff last, last week, he mentioned the fact that there's much kingdom work to be done. And I know that's where his heart and Terry's heart is, that your kingdom grow and expand. And, and I believe with all my heart, you're gonna use this to grow and expand your kingdom. So I pray that you'd be faithful to do that and you would just use this challenge, this difficulty in their life to grow your kingdom. And then Father, I just come before you in my own power, on my own might. I pray that you would heal Philip. And I know that you wove him together in his mother's womb. You know everything there is to know about his body. And so I pray that you would heal him. And that may be through your touch. That may be through doctors and nurses and wisdom and surgery. I don't know how you'll choose to do that, but I pray you would heal him as he seeks to simply serve you right here at Cedar Creek Church and serve you in his personal life. So I trust you to bring healing to his body. But again, right now, I just thank you that you're a big, big God whose resources are not limited. You're at work, you're moving. This hasn't caught you by surprise and you're gonna use this as you have so many other difficulties and challenges in their life. Father, you're gonna use this to point people to you. And I thank you and praise you for that and put this whole situation into your hands and pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.